So we think that the craving is linked with the gut and that there's a gut-brain pathway. The liver, though, is the place where the action is. The glucose goes up in the liver and in the blood, and that triggers the production of fructose. So now you have another mechanism that could drive obesity, not just insulin, but fructose. Which organ is responsible for what effects? The liver, that's the place that drives whether or not you're going to get fat or diabetic. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends, I am so, so excited about today's episode. I love Rick Johnson. I love his work. I love what he's doing. He's also just the kindest, most intelligent, savvy human being. I am so honored to finally connect with him. I have been a fan of his work for years, honestly years. And so to have him on the show now and become friends with him is just so wonderful. And just so you know how much I really appreciate his work, we don't normally have guests on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, and I invited him to come back on that show because that's how valuable I think his work is. We dive deep, deep, deep into so many things in today's show, the role of fructose and uric acid in health, the metabolism, insulin, what really is behind weight gain, and so much more. I think you guys will love it. And as we do dive deep, definitely check out the transcript. That will be in the show notes at melanieavalon.com slash fructose. And there will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post there and comment to enter to win something that I love. And again, friends, people do not take me up on this. You have a very good chance of winning. So definitely check that out. If you're enjoying the show, it would mean the absolute world, world, world. If you could take a brief moment and write an iTunes review, it helps so much more than most people realize. It just takes a moment. It can literally just be like one sentence, like I like this show (laughs) and it really, really, really helps. So thank you so much in advance for that. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it, so please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. 
Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. 
that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity. If you are using conventional skincare makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up and just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Rick Johnson. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so, so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. So here is the backstory leading up to today's conversation. I historically have been very, very fascinated with energy generation in the body, energy processing even down to the granular effect of glucose versus fructose versus sucrose. It's just been a little miniature obsession of mine, which is, well, I would say it's a weird thing to be obsessed with, but if that's the case, then me and today's guests are both in on it. But in any case, back in 2020, I listened to Peter Tia's first interview with Dr. Richard Johnson. He is an MD professor of medicine at the University of Colorado, and I was 
so excited because I finally was hearing somebody talk in the deep detail and nuance about fructose metabolism like I like I had been wanting for so long. And then what's really interesting is ever since listening to that, then I started seeing Dr. Johnson's name everywhere because I realized when I'd been reading all of these studies online, sometimes they were his papers or he would be referenced in other papers because his work is just so expansive and really revolutionary in understanding metabolic syndrome, again, fructose, the obesity epidemic, so many things. So needless to say, that was 2020. He immediately went on my list of ideal guests to bring on the show. And then Rick was coming out with a new book called Nature Wants Us to Be Fat, The Surprising Science Behind Why We Gain Weight and How We Can Prevent and Reverse It. And I think actually his publicist reached out to me and I was so, so excited because I'd been dying to interview him, got the book, dived into it. It's incredible. It is so comprehensive. It goes into so many things, fructose, the obesity epidemic, this thing called the survival switch, hibernation in animals and what that means, uric acid, the polyol pathway, lots of keywords. I'm sure we will dive deep into all of it, but I'm just really, really excited. And I have like 30 pages of notes. So Rick, thank you so much for being here. Melanie, thank you so much. It's really a wonderful thing to be on your show. As I mentioned, you know, you've had so many experts on the show. I'm very happy to to come on aboard and to try to share with you what I have learned from my research. Yes, I am. I'm so honored for you to be here. And actually, we were talking about this before, but Dr. David Perlmutter wrote the foreword to your book, and I'll actually be bringing him on soon for his book, All About Uric Acid, which you talk about as well in Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. So all goes together, so many awesome topics. But to start things off, for listeners who are not familiar with your work, would you like to tell them a little bit about yourself? What led you to your obsession with fructose? And you talk about this in the book, but just in your own words, why are you doing what you're doing today? Well, I tell you, I've been very interested in the causation of diseases. I trained as a kidney specialist. So I was beginning my began my career by studying kidney diseases and I realized that kidney disease is very much linked with high blood pressure and for years it was thought that high blood pressure is a kidney problem in which the kidney has trouble excreting salt. In the process of studying the role of the kidney in high blood pressure, we realized that uric acid was playing a role in the pathogenesis or in the cause of high blood pressure. And so as we studied that, we began to realize that that not only was uric acid important, but we began to realize there are a lot of people with high uric acid. If you go back 50 years or 100 years, the prevalence of high uric acid was much lower. And so the uric acid levels have been increasing dramatically over the last century or so. And so then that question was, well, what's driving the uric acid up? And there are many types of foods that do it, but one that is really good at doing it is sugar. And sugar contains fructose, and it's actually the fructose component that drives the uric acid up. So we thought, well, let's see what happens if we give fructose to animals to raise their uric acid. Will they develop high blood pressure? 
And they did. And then when we lowered the uric acid, we could lower the blood pressure. But then there was the twist. My friend Taka Nakagawa, who was working with me, said, hey, when we lowered the uric acid, we didn't just lower the blood pressure. The animals didn't gain weight as much. They, they didn't gain as much fat. They seemed to be protected from the effects of sugar. And I said, well, that can't be. You know, how could lowering uric acid affect weight gain in animals receiving sugar? Because it didn't block their ability to eat sugar. They were still eating the sugar. And so at that point, we realized that there was something besides calories, the way that sugar was causing disease. And this was in 2005, 2004, and everybody was thinking it was all calories back then. So that turned me on to realize that that fructose was causing obesity and so forth through a mechanism that somehow involved this substance, uric acid, and that it wasn't you know, classically involved with the calories, but with other things that fructose was doing. And that led to hundreds of studies. <laughs> Actually, it's, it has been hundreds of studies. It's a sad statement of how old I am. We, we did lots of experiments, let's say that. And we did those to try to figure out what fructose was doing, how it related to sugar, and so forth. And so that's how I got in there. So I started as a kidney doc and then switched into kind of studying obesity and diabetes pretty early on, you know, now 20 years ago or so. Wow, that is incredible. So with the uric acid studies, when you um, reduced the uric acid, was there any change in the animals, how many calories they took in at all? So no, it did not have as much effect on on calorie intake. It, ha- it had some, but not a, a dramatic effect, but it, di- it did block weight gain. And so it did reduce the food intake by some, some level, but it wasn't a dramatic effect. You know, but later on, we wanted to understand how sugar causes weight gain. So we began to do studies to try to separate calories from other mechanisms. And so we did figure out that sugar can cause obesity and sugar can cause obesity independently of eating too much calories. It increases the fat in you. It can cause insulin resistance and diabetes, even if you reduce your diet so that you're on a caloric restricted diet. So if you go on an actual diet where you cut back on calories and you eat a high sugar diet or a high fructose diet, You can still induce features of fatty liver, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, and so forth, even though you're on a diet. And interestingly, in our our studies, most of the weight gain from sugar is by making you hungry so that you eat more than you normally do. So there is a calorie component to how sugar works. Sugar does make you hungry. So you eat more than you normally do. And that certainly helps with weight gain. So if you're eating more, and especially if you eat foods that are, have a lot of calories like fat, if you combine sugar with fat, animals will gain weight very rapidly. Now, if you give them fat alone, they don't really gain as weight that much because they control, they, most of them will control their weight. But if you give them sugar, that makes them hungry 
so that you eat, you will eat more. And then when you give them fatty diet, then it makes a difference. And that's why a low carb diet, you know, if you're on a low carb diet, you can eat a high fat diet and you aren't going to gain weight because you don't have the hunger. And so, you know, the low carb diet's great. You don't have to calorie restrict because you naturally calorie restrict because you're not hungry. But when you give fructose, you make an animal will become hungry. Interesting, it takes a few weeks. So if you, if you just give sugar for one week to an animal, they control their weight. But if you give it to them for like a, three weeks or four weeks, they, they suddenly get really hungry. And, and we found that that was because they become resistant to leptin. And leptin is this hormone that goes up when we eat and says, hey, you're full, don't eat anymore. But people who are overweight tend to be resistant to the leptin. And so they, they will continue to eat even though they have high blood levels of leptin. In fact, the way we test for leptin is we inject an animal with leptin. And if they're resistant, they'll continue to eat. And if they're not resistant, they'll, they'll quit eating or, or really reduce their food. And when you give them sugar or fructose, after about a month, if you give them leptin, an injection of leptin, they'll keep eating like nothing has happened. But if you give the leptin to a normal animal or an animal on a high fat diet, they will reduce their intake. So there's something special about the fructose that makes you hungry and then you eat more. But even if you put the animal on a diet so it can't eat more, even though it may be hungry, you can't, you don't allow it to eat the food. You know, you take away their food so that they can't eat it. They will still develop metabolic syndrome. And interestingly, in our clinical trial, I mean, or not clinical trial, in our experimental trial where we did this, the animals that were on a diet where we calorically restricted them, the controls lost about 10 grams of weight. And the ones that got sugar, even though they were on the same exact number of calories, they gained like 20 grams, but it wasn't statistically significant. And it wasn't because it was a relatively short study. But when you take fructose, two things happen. One is you get hungry, and the other is you reduce your metabolism. So you, you're spending less energy. So they, if you give an animal fructose, they start sitting around more. They, they basically become couch potatoes, Melanie. To take things back a little bit for listeners, because we're using the word sugar and fructose. So when you say sugar, are you referring to sucrose primarily, which would be fructose and glucose, or are you are using sugar as a synonym for fructose? Maybe if you can tell listeners sucrose versus glucose versus fructose, what those are. Yeah, absolutely. I'll define it, and then I'll be careful moving forward how I use those terms. So fructose is a, the sugar that is classically in fruit. We think of it as fruit sugar, and it's in fruit and it's in honey. These are things that we think of as good, right? And then fructose is also in table sugar and high fructose corn syrup. And so table sugar is sucrose, and it's what we call a disaccharide. What it is, is it's a fructose and glucose bound together. So when you're eating sugar, table sugar, half of it is fructose and half of it is glucose. When you, take, when you eat high fructose corn syrup, you're also eating a mixture of fructose and glucose. 
And glucose is usually a little bit less than fructose in the high fructose corn syrup in terms of the ratio. So fructose is typically 55 or 60%, and glucose is typically like 45 or 40%. They do that because fructose is what gives sugar the sweeter, is really responsible for the sweet taste. Glucose has a very, very mildly sweet taste. And so people like the sweetness, and it turns out they prefer to have something like 55 to 45 is like the ideal amount that people tend to like. And if it's too high, then it gets too sweet and people don't like it. And if it's lower, they tend to want that 55-45 ratio. So most soft drinks that have high fructose corn syrup have 55% fructose in it. But like in fountain drinks where you, the, the people mix it slightly different, the fructose content can go up to 60 or 65% of the drink. And so for people, for us, when we go to the grocery store, most of the fructose we get, most of the, the vast majority of fructose we, the average person eats comes from added sugars. These are table sugar, sucrose, which has half fructose and high fructose corn syrup. And, and what's terrible is that high fructose corn syrup is a liquid and it can be mixed into foods easily. And so there are many, many processed foods that have sugar in them, or when I say sugar, I mean table sugar, or high fructose corn syrup in them. And sometimes it's subtle where you can't, it's, when you think about, when you eat it, you don't think there's sugar in it. And then someone says, hey, you know, it tasted a little sweet, didn't it? And then you look at the package and it is, you know, you know, like wheat thins. I love, when I was a kid, I loved wheat thins. I don't know if you ever had those crackers, but if you taste them, there's just a tiny bit of sweetness to it. And so people do this. And and one of the terrible things that we, in experiment, when I say terrible, I don't mean terrible like uh, terrible science, but, you know, something I, w- I was hoping I wouldn't see. And that was when we knocked out the sweet taste and so that a mouse could not taste sweet. In fact, we knocked out all taste. So these are called tasteless mice. They can't taste anything. They still like sugar. They still like fructose. They still like glucose. They like it. And so they they get a dopamine response in their brain, even though they can't taste it. So even if you can't taste the sugar, if it's there, maybe it's encouraging you to eat it. Not only that, those tasteless mice became fat when we offered them sugar water or regular water. They're still sensitive to the effects of sugar. And so it just shows that it's not taste that's responsible for how sugar causes obesity. It isn't because it tastes good so you go back and eat more. That's not the mechanism. It's actually how it's metabolized and it's linked with this uric acid. And that's how it works. So, yeah. Bad news. You also discussed in the book about how the cravings were also determined about if it was metabolized in the intestines versus the liver, right, with the enzyme? Yeah. So this was also kind of an exciting finding. So one of the things we know is that when you eat sugar, even if you can't taste it, you end up like craving for it. 
And so the, the, another question came is, is it craving a sugar? Is that what causes you to become obese or is it not from craving? What we did was we could create a mouse that could only metabolize fructose in, a, in certain organs, you know, so we could, we could knock out the ability for the mouse to metabolize fructose like in the gut or the liver, the brain. And when we did that, we could, we could figure out, you know, which organ is responsible for what effects. And what we found was that the liver, that's the, the place that drives whether or not you're going to get fat or diabetic. Because when we knocked out the metabolism of fructose in the liver, we could block how sugar or fructose causes obesity. We could block how fructose causes diabetes. So if we could just block the metabolism of fructose in the liver, you can eat all the fructose you want, but you're not going to get fat. And interestingly, when we knocked it out of the liver, the animals still loved sugar. So they could eat all the sugar they want, but they wouldn't gain weight. So it was the liver that was responsible for the whole thing. And, but they still, it wasn't responsible for the craving because they, the animals that we knocked it out of the liver, they still love sugar. So then we knocked it out in the intestines and they reduced their sugar intake dramatically. It was like they didn't really care for sugar anymore. So we think that the craving is linked with the gut and that there's a gut-brain pathway involved in craving and the liver, though, is the place where the action is. Yeah, kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, you know, when you combine like a little bit of research like this kind of stuff, and you also do studies in people and try to do things like in nature and so forth, you get a lot of insights. And so these are where we were able to, to better understand how sugar works. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. 
I seriously had the time of my life last year and I would love to hang out with you guys and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohacking conference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohacking conference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. So does that suggest that in general, our cravings are primarily determined by our intestines and our taste is actually just an avenue to find the things that will get rid of those cravings rather than cravings originating from our taste itself? Yes. I think taste is a secondary mechanism. Our, this is really kind of interesting. There's five tastes, right? Two of them are bitter and sour. And those two tastes are, they're primarily to, to protect you from eating things that could hurt you. But there are three great tastes that are all tastes that people love. And some people love one taste more than another. So some like sweet, some like salt, and some like umami. I love umami. <laughs> I love umami. So the good news is, okay, so there's bad news and good news. You know, so it turns out that sugar is the number one. And when I say sugar, I mean fructose containing sugars. That's the number one way to become overweight. And and the sweet taste is trying to drive you to pick out sweet foods that might have fructose in it. So the, the sweet taste receptor is there to help you find those foods. Now, you will be come addicted to the food, even if you can't taste it. But it is true. If you knock out the taste, they'll eat less. So they'll eat less, but they still prefer it to water. So like, you know, if you give them water or sugar water, they'll prefer the sugar water, even if they can't taste it. But they will reduce the amount they drink, but they still get fat equally amazingly. If you give them artificial sweeteners, they don't care for the artificial, you knock out the sweet receptor, they don't care for artificial sweeteners anymore. Artificial sweeteners is primarily driven by taste. That makes sense because with the artificial sweeteners, it's not actually fulfilling the gut's craving, like the intestinal craving, but it's tricking the taste to make the gut think it's coming. But since it doesn't come, it makes sense that you wouldn't have that effect. And, and the bad news about artificial sweeteners is they keep you kind of hooked on the the liking of sweetness. So the, the biggest problem with the artificial sweeteners is not that they cause obesity. They may, one of them may cause a little insulin resistance, but we've done many experiments with artificial sweeteners. They don't cause obesity, but they do make you seek sweet foods. So in that process, you can't completely get rid of your craving for sweets. And so that's all that biology is fighting you now. You end up still wanting sweets. So it's hard to, in the long term, not to, to have some sweets here and there that you uh, would not necessarily f- feel the urge for 
if you weren't on those sweeteners. Going back to the other piece, blocking the the fructokinase in the liver, does the organism not experience the metabolic effects because it's literally blocking the calories or is it something beyond that? Because if you're blocking the fructokinase in the liver, then you're just literally not getting that fuel source, right? Yes. Yeah, so, so the liver does seem to drive a lot of, of things, even in the periphery. I, the part that amazed me was that it, it blocked accumulation of fat in the adipose or fat tissues. So, you know, I was pretty sure it would block the fat accumulation in the liver because it's in the liver. And we know that if you block that fructose metabolism in the liver, you block fatty, the development of fatty liver. That made sense to me. But what was interesting was that it blocked the fat accumulation in the periphery. And so there's a, a communication. Exactly, you know, how this works, we haven't f- totally figured out. It's sort of our next series of studies is to understand communication from the liver to the brain and from the liver to the fat. And there's, you know, but we, we see all kinds of evidence, you know, that it's uh, affecting all these peripheral mechanisms. So the liver seems to be like a sort of like a, a conductor and it's, it's working through the liver. It's working in, in the peri- peripheral tissues as well. So we'll have to figure out exactly how that works. Uric acid is, is likely involved to some extent because it is produced uh, heavily in the liver and then it gets in the circulation. So uh, there's some data to suggest that that's one of the cues driving that. I don't think it's the only one it's involved. So it's blocking the fat generated from the fructose or it's blocking fat in the meal in general going into the adipose tissue? Ah, so this is a big question, Melanie. Absolutely great question. So a long time ago, people were thinking that it was known for a long time that if you gave fructose to people, that triglycerides go up in the blood like 30 minutes later or four hours later. I'm sorry, it's four hours later. And the assumption was that those triglycerides were coming from the fructose itself, so that when the fructose is broken down, components of, you know, of the breakdown products then get turned into fat. And there is some breakdown products of fructose that do go into fat, but it, you know, it was a very small amount. It couldn't, it couldn't account for this big rise in triglyceride. So the really fantastic discovery was done by my partner, uh, Miguel Lanaspa, and he was studying how fructose works. And what he found was that there was, that when you eat fructose, that there's this thing called oxidative stress that occurs. There's a burst of kind of a, this kind of chemically reactive oxygen that's produced in the liver cell. And that affects the mitochondria. And it's driven by the uric acid. Remember, we we knew that the uric acid was involved. And that oxidative stress kind of stuns the mitochondria. And what it does is it sets up for fat production from, from precursors of fat that do not have to necessarily be from the fructose. So it sort of stimulates other 
you know, glucose and other things present and fatty acids and so forth, it, it, it stimulates them to start making fat. So the fat doesn't actually come from the fructose. It comes from the other nutrients that are there. And so it turns out that fructose itself is sort of like glucose. It's just a, a sugar that it's a type of sugar, not table sugar, but a type of sugar in the global sense. And, and that, you know, it can be broken down to make energy and it can be turned into fat and uh, glycogen. But fructose activates another process that tries to stimulate fat, not even from its own molecule, but from other, other things present. And it stimulates hunger, which makes you want to eat other foods. And it's not just sugar that you want to eat. It does cause craving of sugar, right? But it, or, or sweet, but it also makes you eat more food even if you can't really taste it. So this leptin resistance kicks in that makes you hungry. So fructose is a different beast. And, and we've kind of fell into the big mechanism by which it works. And it's sort of interesting because it's a nutrient. And so nutrients are provide calories and calories give us energy. And when we get energy, it's, it's either an instant form of energy, what we call ATP, which is made you know, largely by mitochondria and other mechanisms. And it, and it makes stored energy and stored energy is like fat or glycogen. And so whenever you eat, you're, you know, it's used to drive biologic, act, you know, how we live and move and act and think That's you know, we need calories for that. And some of the calories are converted to instant energy and some is converted to stored energy. And what fructose does is it creates an alarm signal because it drops the instant energy by you know, 10 or 20 percent. And what it, and what it does is it tells the animal that that there's some kind of alarm going on that you don't have quite enough food. And so that's what seems to trigger food intake, fat accumulation, everything. It's like, uh oh, I'm running low on my stores. And so it stimulates what one of my friends called an insurance plan. It's like start fructose stimulates an insurance plan. It isn't really, it's triggered sort of by starvation, but it's not starvation. It's just a drop in the energy in the cell that makes the animal feel like it doesn't have enough things, enough fat stored away. So when that happens, it, it stimulates more fat storage. And it does that even though you already may have fat. So it tricks you. So you actually may have all this energy available. You have all this, this fat and glycogen that are stored energy, but when it drops the immediate energy, it tricks you into thinking that there's not enough energy around. So you, you make more fat. So it's uh, a way to increase your fat. So all, all animals, all of us have 10, you know, some body fat. If we didn't have any body fat, we'd be really in trouble. But everybody has some body fat. And what this does is when you eat fructose, it wants to increase your body fat, no matter where you start. So if you're at 10% body fat, it wants to make it 15%. If you're at 15%, it wants to make you 20% and so forth. So fructose is an insurance plan aimed at increasing your fat stores, 
while glucose is kind of the immediate fuel. It's there to really make immediate energy that you can use right away. So the two sugars look very similar in composition. One's there to make immediate energy and one's there to make stored energy. I have a question about that. I want to clarify one thing before that. When you were talking about how fructose does not itself create a lot of fat stores from the fructose, rather it's how fructose affects the metabolic health of the cell and then it starts creating fat from other things. But you mentioned it creating fat from glucose, but since glucose is also a simple sugar, does glucose easily become fat or is it mostly just fatty acids that are becoming fat? in the context of fructose. You can make fat from glucose for sure. Fatty acids are a major way, of course. But yes, you, you can make fat from almost any kind of cal- caloric source. So there's, there's pathways to do it. So yeah. The glucose to fat storage conversion, is that easier to do more likely than fructose itself to fat stores? Not necessarily. So... You know, I'm not an expert on this. You certainly can create fat by eating glucose and then, you know, enters the Krebs cycle and or citric acid cycle. And then, uh, you know, you, some of it can be diverted with the acetyl-CoA to, towards fat. So, you know, for sure you can generate fat. And glucose, you know, when you stimulate insulin will actually help increase fat as well. And so, and glucose, when you eat it, the insulin also tends to try to block the degradation of fat in the periphery. So there's definitely a carb-fat pathway that is very important, and there's also a fat-fat pathway, and proteins maybe make fat a little bit less. But yeah, no, you definitely can make fat from both carbs and fat. And, And when you give fructose... You know, you, you, you increase fat, and it turns out that we probably should talk about one way that when you eat glucose, well, another way glucose can increase fat is that it can be converted to fructose in the body. So that's a whole new story. You know, there's this big controversy going on in the scientific world about whether when you drink a soft drink, there's fructose in it, and there's also glucose in it. And so the question was, is one of them the dominant player in causing the obesity epidemic? And glucose, as we mentioned, stimulates insulin, and insulin and that combination increases not only the storage of glucose as glycogen, but the conversion of glucose to fat. And so the thought was, is that a lot of people were thinking that it's the glucose that's key. It's really a problem of high glycemic foods, foods that when carbs that you eat that make your blood glucose go up, that triggers the insulin response that then can drive the fat production. Certain foods, when you eat certain carbs, will raise the glucose level in your blood substantially. And those Foods or things like bread, rice, potatoes, you know, crackers, cereal, <laughs> chips, they tend to um, have a high glycemic index, which means that when you eat them, there's a spillover into the blood of glucose. And the, and the blood glucose, which is normally like 90 
might go up to 120 or 130 following a meal or even higher following a meal with a high glycemic carb. And so, and then that would trigger insulin and insulin could help drive the glucose to, to into being stored as fat or as glycogen. And so uh, that's been a major hypothesis. I think Gary Tobbs has really talked about that, David Ludwig, and there's evidence in support of that. But what we found out was that when you eat glucose, that it when the glucose levels go up, high glycemic foods, again, are culprits, that some of that glucose gets converted to fructose, especially in the liver. And now I told you how important the liver was for fructose. So when you're eating, you know, drinking glucose solutions or drink or eating a lot of high glycemic carbs, the glucose goes up in the liver and in the blood, and that triggers the production of fructose. So now you have another mechanism that could drive obesity, not just insulin, but fructose. And, and so what we did is we gave glucose to mice that couldn't metabolize fructose. They had a normal insulin response and they loved glucose, but instead of getting fat, like really control rats who became, you know, the, the, the normal rats fed glucose became quite fat and they became pre-diabetic and the whole bit, but they had high fructose levels in their, in their liver. And when we blocked the fructose, we found that we could significantly reduce the development of obesity. They still became a little obese, but they were, they were protected from insulin resistance and they were protected from fatty liver very well. And then we did a study with soft drinks and kind of showed the same thing. So what, what we think is, is that the main mechanism by which soft drinks cause obesity is through the fructose content. It's not just the fructose that you drink, but the glucose is being converted to fructose as well in the liver. And it's the fructose that's driving a lot of the obesity and fatty liver. There is some being driven by insulin. And, it, you know, when I discussed this with Gary, he pointed out that, you know, when these animals, fructose makes an animal insulin resistant and pre-diabetic. And it's the fructose that does it, right? But once you become insulin resistant, your insulin levels tend to be high in the blood. And although the fat is, the insulin resistance in the fat is to glucose, not to, not other mechanisms. So when you become insulin resistant, glucose can't get into the fat tissue, but the insulin is still working on the fat tissue and blocking the degradation of fat. So fat accumulates. So insulin even with a fructose pathway, insulin turns out to be playing a role in the obesity, but it's work, not working because glucose is stimulating it. It's working because fructose is causing insulin resistance. So the insulin levels go high and then the insulin blocks the fat from being burned in the, in the fat tissue. So we've got a couple, you know, so I mean, this is really deep science, but the bottom line is sugar which contains glucose and fructose, can cause obesity, metabolic syndrome, fatty liver, and it's primarily the fructose that's responsible, but the fructose can come both from the diet, but it can also be made 
in response to high glycemic carbs. And, you know, Melanie, this really points out the, how important carb restriction is, low-carb diets, keto diets, in terms of blocking this mechanism. So if you really want to lose weight, you know, intermittent fasting is a great way of removing the, you know, your exposure to these carbs. And a low-carb diet or keto diet would be another way to uh, reduce the exposure to not just the fructose we eat, but like high glycemic carbs that can convert fructose in the body. So, so what you've championed really makes a lot of sense to me. Hi, friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits, as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold condition. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee with the coupon code melanieavalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10 year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make 
epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. So is that the polyol pathway, the, the glucose to fructose conversion? There's only one way that animals can make fructose and they make it through a thing called the polyol pathway. Sorry for the complicated name, but this polyol pathway is converts glucose to fructose and it can be activated a number of ways. So the number one way is by a high glucose. So like in diabetes, when you have a high glucose, you're making fructose. So almost everybody who has diabetes, especially if it's not well controlled, they're making fructose, okay? And when you eat a high glycemic carb, it's sort of like trying to create a diabetic state in your transient diabetic state in your liver because the glucose levels go up high and that converts the glucose to fructose. I mean, it activates the polyol pathway and it converts the glucose to fructose. So this is the main way that we make fructose. But interestingly, this pathway can get turned on in stress. So like in a heart attack, it was shown that in the heart, uh, you start making fructose. Can you believe that? When there's low oxygen, you can start making fructose. It's sort of like being turned on in situations of survival, you know, and if you're dehydrated, if you get dehydrated, fructose production can increase. So inside of you, so there, but usually it's, you know, these are kind of small amounts with just mild, you know, but the dehydration pathway may be much more important as a mechanism for stimulating fructose. And we, we kind of learned about that when we, we realized that most people with obesity have an elevated hormone in their blood called vasopressin, which is a marker of dehydration. And it's like uncanny if you just measure vasopressin, the, the, the blood test is called copeptin, but if you measure it in a population, people who are overweight almost always have a high copeptin. And if, you, if you're lean, and you have a high copeptin, you're at quite an increased risk for developing obesity or diabetes. And what makes the copeptin go up is if you're dehydrated. There's a scientist named Jody Stuckey. I think you should invite her on your podcast. She's really an unbelievable character who has championed, you know, studies looking at how well our population's hydrated. And it's kind of, you know, we, we tend to, most people are not drinking enough water. It's especially true for people who are overweight or obese. It's depending on what kind of measurement you use, it can be like five or tenfold higher risk for dehydration if you're overweight or obese. And so this is, you know, something you might say, well, how can that be, you know? Well, it turns out that to become dehydrated, there's two ways you can do it. You can drink too little water, or you can eat too much salt and both have the same effect on your blood. So when you, when you drink too little, the salt concentration goes up in your blood and that tri- triggers thirst. 
and the condition we call dehydration. So when you're dehydrated, if you're losing water like vomiting or diarrhea or sweating, as you lose water, the salt concentration goes up in the blood and, and it creates thirst, stimulates this vasopressin hormone, and you are dehydrated. But if you eat salty food, like really salty food, which we love, I mean, salted popcorn, gotta, much of my kid's life, you know, when I was a kid was, was trying, making popcorn and going to the movies and eating popcorn and, and getting really thirsty from it. And then we drink soft drinks to quench our thirst. And of course, soft drinks are not quenching. They actually dehydrate you more. And so you're still thirsty. So you drink more and more soft drinks and you eat more and more popcorn and you're raising the salt concentration in your blood. And that activates this polyol pathway. And so the polyol pathway makes fructose. And then fructose, as it's metabolized, sucks the water out of the blood into the tissues as it makes glycogen. And so fructose will rapidly make glycogen and fat. Uh, you know, it's sort of interesting, Melody, whenever I would eat popcorn, the next day I would gain like two pounds. And I always thought it was water, but it may not be. It, it, I think it's likely glycogen. And that what happened was I just activated this massive glycogen deposition into my into my my liver, which is not great. But yeah, and 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 if it was just water, you'd expect the weight to come down like the next day, but it tends to come down slower when you eat that kind of salty food. It it takes you have to like go back to your low carb, low salt or intermittent fasting type of diet. The big thing we found was that salt can be a cause of obesity. And and when we gave animal salt, it took a lot longer. So, you know, with sugar, it's kind of quick, you know, not the first few weeks. It's not a two-week thing or three-week thing. With sugar, it's a, if you're giving it to a, a mouse or something, I mean, it takes two, two or three months but if you give salt, you have to give wait twice as long, four, four or five months before they really become start becoming fat. So there's a, a different process. And salt is slower and more secret. It's kind of like a stealth mechanism for obesity. So you're talking about all of these different markers or factors that correlate to metabolic syndrome and obesity. So we talked about the high uric acid levels. We're talking about the dehydration and all within nature wants us to be fat. You talk about how it relates to this, basically this survival switch, which is creating a state in our body that would be preparing for a sort of hibernation and that in animals, you know, their body activates all these pathways so that they can store up all this fat. And then when they're hibernating, you talk about how hibernation sort of mimics metabolic syndrome. A question about that. So these animals that are hibernating or migration, you talk about how it happens with birds that are migrating, which was so cool. I had no idea about that. Those situations with animals who are hibernating and birds that are migrating and the similarity in their bodies to metabolic syndrome. Oh, and also the hummingbird. <laughs> um, is there a form of, quote, metabolic syndrome 
all five things like the abdominal obesity, the triglycerides, the low HDL, the blood pressure, and the high fasting blood sugar? Or is it a little bit different? There is a little variation. It's not exactly the same. So for example, bears, they become hungry, leptin resistant. They start foraging. They put on fat. They block burning the fat and they increase the fat production. And so they, they do almost everything, right? And But no one's really measured their blood pressure to see if their blood pressure goes up. So that's not been proven that the blood pressure goes up. Or their HDL. Yeah. And the, also, they I don't think there's studies looking at the HDL. If you give fructose to a mouse, they do show the all the whole things, the HDL falls. Even the HDL? Yeah. Oh, wow. I was wondering if the HDL was like the thing that might be a little bit different. Well, in the rat, I, I, in the rat, it's been certainly reported that fructose drops HDL, increases VLDL and triglycerides. And so, I mean... It, oh, and the fructose. Yeah, yeah. So it, it can do the whole thing. But in, in these animals in the wild, it, there, there's some variability. So it turns out birds, they get almost all of these same things. They get insulin resistant, fat. They get a very, very prominent fatty liver, which is more than you see like in the mammals. But, you know, it's interesting, birds lack this uricase just like we do. So we're, when it comes to the uric acid pathways, we're a little bit more alike the bird in terms of the fact that it doesn't have uricase and we don't have uricase. Uricase is an enzyme that degrades uric acid and most mammals have it, but we lost that gene years ago and probably to help us survive by kind of enhancing this sugar pathway, the fructose pathway. But anyway, there is this survival switch. Most of the animals show pretty much the majority of the same features. Some of them have not been studied and there may be some exceptions, you know, but they're all, you know, it's, it's a pretty consistent story that these animals will before they hibernate or before they migrate or before they nest, they have to rapidly increase their weight. Some of them seem to do it by eating fructose. And in others, we don't really know the mechanism, but we think it's because they somehow activate fructose production in their body. But that's something we want to prove. We haven't actually proven it yet. But like bears, yeah, bears, for example, will eat a lot of fructose in the fall. And we did do a study in hibernating bears, and they do get high blood levels of fructose, you know, when they're preparing for hibernation. Because I was thinking a lot about that, like if the fructose signaling is required to start this preparation for hibernation. And so evolutionarily, what would have come first? Like how do we evolve to instigate this hibernating pathway like, did we eat the fruit first and the fruit made us fat? And then that was like a happy chance that made us be okay for winter? Or did we learn to gain weight and then associate it with fruit? I'm not articulating this well. I'm curious. So for example, with the animals that are not eating fructose, but they're still turning on the survival switch and hibernating, like why take that extra step to make fructose when they could just store the fat? Like, why would you even go that route? You know, you're asking a really good question that I can't totally answer, but it seems like very early on in evolution, there was um, 
a distinction made between the kind of nutrients and the biology of their effects. So it, it seems to me that glucose was, was really designed as being the immediate energy that animals use to, to do things, you know, in the immediate sense. And fructose seems to have been a, a fuel that was used to, to preferentially store calories. It seems like, you know, Mother Nature kind of figured this out. So, for example, trees, a lot of trees will, the fruits will ripen in the fall. The, the fruit will ripen in the fall. And that's when the sugar content goes up. And so the, the trees sort of time the fruiting of the tree to a period of time when the animals need, want to have fructose to, to store the extra fat in preparation for the fall and winter. And so there, there seems to be like a timing where they, and then in turn, the, when the animals eat the fruit, they disperse the seeds to help the tree. So it's kind of like a symbiotic thing. There's a, there's even a fish, I, you know, I've commented on this in a other podcast. There's a fish called the Paku that lives in the Amazon. And when the Amazon floods... Eats the fruit. <laughs> yeah, he eats the fruit out of the tree. So, and the trees have it timed. You know, the, I, read these, I read these papers going all the way back to like the late 1800s. It's really interesting. But it's been noted that the, you know, that the timing of the floods, the, the times with the, with the fruiting and the ripening of the fruit and the fish... You know, everything's there perfectly. And then the fish eats the fruit, gets fat from it because they eat so many. So they get a big dose of fructose because they're really eating a lot for their body weight. And then they, they get this fat and then they quit eating. And the Amazon recedes. And when it recedes back to its regular river, they, they can go months with eating very minimal food. In the reg- and they kind of wait until, you know, the flood again, and then they go out there and get more fruit. So it's really, I mean, uh, so there seems to be some, a longstanding relationship that has developed between how these animals survive in nature. And we've kind of disrupted that. And this is one reason I like intermittent fasting is, is intermittent fasting sort of goes back to the way nature wanted us, you know, where we would, you know, put on a little fat, then you need to burn it off. And when you hibernate, you actually remove the food. You, you no longer have the food available. And then your body transitions into a point where it's burning the fat. And so there's an argument that intermittent fasting is a great way, you know, has a evolutionary basis to it. Well, that actually brings me to a huge question I have for you. So I'm excited you brought that up. And I actually first thought about this, not in your most recent interview with Peter Atia, but that first one that I listened to in 2020. And it's something that you touched on as well in this interview, which was the role of fructose in the the cells and how it's energy depleting. And I don't think you mentioned this in the interview, but in your book, you talk about how it's converted to, is it ADP and AMP? So my question is, and how this relates to fasting, is the benefits of fasting, calorie restriction, and or calorie restriction are often attributed to AMPK. How is it different? So AMP activated kinase, how is that different? Because when I first heard you talk about fructose creating an energy deficit in the cell, 
normally that's what we want is an energy deficit. So how is that not activating AMPK? How is that not a good thing? Okay, so let's go through that. So it's a complicated question. So if if it's okay with you, what I'd like to do is kind of take you through how the fructose works and its relationship with AMPK. Okay. I'm so excited. I'm ready. (laughs) So fructose lowers the ATP level in the cell, but not to zero, not to alarm that the cell is going to die, but it drops it like 10, 20%, which is kind of like a warning. So it drops it only 10 to 20%. The way it does that, it first consumes some ATP as the fructose is metabolized and it consumes the enzyme that metabolizes fructose does it so rapidly that there's this immediate drop in energy associated with metabolism or breaking down of fructose. So there's, you know, it costs calories to make calories and so, or to cost energy to make energy. And so some energy is used up as the fructose is burned. So there's this immediate drop. That immediate drop triggers because of there's a fall in not just ATP, but also phosphate. And that triggers an enzyme that called AMP deaminase. And that enzyme sweeps away AMP. When the ATP is used, it makes ADP and AMP. And then normally the AMP would then be remade back to ATP. So there's this kind of normal shuttle where ATP goes to ADP and AMP, and then they get re- remade back to ATP. But when you, when you drop the phosphate in the cell, it activates an enzyme that takes away the AMP and makes uric acid. And so it's specific to fructose. So glucose doesn't do that. And so now you don't have enough AMP to kind of reconstitute ATP. And at the same time, you're removing the AMP and making the uric acid. And then the uric acid goes into the energy factories themselves that actually localizes to the mitochondria and and brings with it an enzyme that causes oxidative stress. And you get this big oxidative stress in the mitochondria that slows down the mitochondria. And it slows down both the fatty acid oxidation and the Krebs cycle or citric cycle. So it it makes the mitochondria make less ATP. Coming out of that, the energy, instead of being made into ATP, tends to be shunted into fat. So fat is a stored energy. So instead of making immediate energy, it shifts it to stored energy. And one of the ways that the uric acid also works, in in addition to working on the mitochondria, is it inhibits the AMP kinase. So this there's a, a thing that's activated that helps burn fat. It burns fat and it burns glucose, basically. And it's called AMPK. And low AMPK characterizes diabetes. And things that increase AMPK can be used to kind of treat diabetes. And a stimulating AMPK is a good thing because it causes burning of fat. And when the uric acid goes up in the cell, it blocks that. So you don't you you um, end up not being able to burn fat so well. And glucose levels go up in the blood as well because it ends up stimulating this thing where, where you start making glucose. The liver starts pouring out glucose. And so, so what, what's happened is when you eat fructose, 
you are resetting the energy to a lower level and you're inhibiting AMP kinase. Now, when you are starving and you have zero energy, you need to activate AMPK to make ATP because you don't have enough to survive. Even though you may have no fat, you'll try to burn whatever fat you have. You'll try to burn whatever glucose you have. So you're trying hard to make ATP when the level gets really low. And so when we eat fructose, it's like we're preparing for starvation, not actually being in the extremes of starvation. And so when you're in the extremes of starvation, you want to activate AMPK to help you survive. But when you're trying to store fat, you actually want to inhibit AMPK to help you store fat and to raise glucose levels and so forth. So that's sort of the difference. When an animal hibernates, and we did this study, the enzyme that is storing fat, we call AMPD aminase, its levels fall and AMP kinase goes up. And the AMP kinase then allows the animal to burn the fat while it's hibernating. And when you're fasting, you're actually stimulating AMP kinase. And so that's good because it helps you burn fat. And so AMP kinase can be, is a good guy if you're wanting to lose weight. And if you're wanting to gain weight, it's, it's a bad guy. You want to inhibit it. If you, so does that help? Hi friends, I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me 
Oh my goodness, friends, I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it. And it lasts for 14 hours. And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, PS, they're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. So basically when you're taking in the fructose, it creates like a little miniature, we're going to be starving soon, but store energy compared to if you're actually starving or actually fasting, your body's like, we have to generate energy. So it starts burning energy. Right, right. So, so immediate energy is what you need if you have, if you're about to die. But if you get a warning sign that things are not good, you actually, you know, that you think could happen in the future, then you want to store energy. So what if you combine those? What would be stronger? So what if if you're fasting, you're actually starving, but then you have like a little bit of fructose? What would that do? We've actually done some studies on this. And then there's a beautiful paper in the literature on this too. So when you're starving, it's sort of interesting. Or like even on a keto diet, your uric acid may go up even though you're burning fat. And uric acid is supposed to block the burning of fat when you're starving, the process to burn fat becomes stronger than, than the ability of uric acid to block it. We think the uric acid is actually helping still bring raise glucose 
or to increase glucose output from the liver. So we do think that it's still kicking in to help, but it's not when, when you're truly starving, the AMP kinase pathway just takes over and is stronger. And you can actually show that. And there's an interesting, there's a paper that took starving animals and they had a high uric acid. And when they gave them fructose, the fructose was turned completely into glucose. So it went the other way. And the fructose became an immediate fuel. And of all things, the, you know, with starvation, uric acid tends to go up. Because what happens is you start breaking down muscle. The way it works with starvation is once you want to run out of fat and glucose, you start breaking down your muscle using that as an energy source. And that rapidly leads to death. But at that stage, uric acid goes up in the blood from the breaking down of muscle. The uric acid is may actually be helping to drive glucose up. But anyway, so if you give any kind of energy in a starving animal, it doesn't matter so long as it's a calorie, the animal will use it to try to make ATP. So it kind of reroutes the system. And so starvation is such a critical, near-fatal and sometimes fatal event that animals will, will do everything they can to take any source of calorie and try to use it to survive. But when, the way we eat fructose, we're using it more like as a warning sign. It creates a warning sign that we could, that we could lose, we could be in uh, trouble. And so it's preferentially using this pathway that will lead to fat accumulation and inhibition of AMPK. So I think a really practical takeaway from that, and I'm not advocating going on severely restricted diets, but I think that dismantles the myth. There's this idea that if you, you know, are eating too low calorie of a diet, you'll enter starvation mode and they'll reach a point where you won't lose any more weight. But it sounds like if you actually are, and I'm again, not advocating this as a dietary approach, but if you actually are starving, you are going to burn fat, you know, like that pathway is going to overtake the storage promoting pathway. Yeah. The way, yeah. So the way it works is that the fat and the glycogen that's in our, that we've stored, they are preferentially used when we're starving. And eventually when they go get used up, then the, the muscles are broken down and that's really the very end stage. And that's when people really die rapidly. There is a very, very strong mechanism when you starve to drop your energy metabolism. So if you're not getting enough calories, the body tries to respond by reducing how much it will spend. So it's, it's not like uh, hibernation, but they, there's a real move to reduce, to slow your metabolism, especially when you're at rest. And so that can be quite significant. So what what happens is that people, when they start losing weight, they find they have to eat less to stay at, at the same weight. So let's say, you know, you normally eat 1,800 calories or a day, and now you want to lose weight, so you lose 10 pounds, but your body adapts to that by trying to lower its metabolism. And so now to eat this, to stay at the same weight, you know, this new weight, you have to eat less calories a day. And this can make it very difficult. And the way that you can get around that is if you can improve your mitochondria. The mitochondria 
you know, are, are your energy factories and they make ATP. And as we get older, they work a little bit less well. And as we get overweight, chronically being overweight also wears them down. And so what you need to do is to try to keep the energy factories strong. And there's certain foods that do that. Vitamin C is good for that, by the way. Dark chocolate's good for that. But the best way is to have an exercise program and to try to exercise in what we call zone two, where you raise your heart rate enough so that you are getting the muscles working, but you're not going into exhaustion very quickly and you, you don't build up lactic acid in your blood. And so the classic teaching is to exercise until you have trouble talking. As soon as you, if you can still talk while you're exercising, but just barely, that's perfect. And if you can't talk, you're probably going too fast. And if you uh, can talk easily, you're probably exercising too slowly. And so, you know, get on a stationary bike or whatever, walking or jogging. But that's that's what they recommend. And then by improving your mitochondria, then when you lose weight, you can still eat your 1,600 calories a day without having to worry about regaining the weight. So, I have so many more questions, but I want to be super respectful of your time. But one last question I could ask would be, because you touched on the vitamin C, because I think listeners might be a little bit nervous right now about fructose and fruit. and um, But fruit is high in vitamin C and some other you know nutrients that possibly might counteract these issues. All of these studies on fructose, do we find any of this with whole fruit? Yeah. So I've done studies on whole fruit, both clinical studies, as well as we've done research studies on the components in fruit. And natural fruits, whole fruits, contain substances that block fructose effects. And, but it's when the fruit is not super ripe. And, it, and so fruit contains vitamin C, and it contains potassium, and it contains flavanols. And all of these are substances that actually block some of the effects of fructose. So does fiber. And so it's like the plant doesn't really want the animal to eat the fruit when it's tart. They want to wait for the fruit to ripen so the seeds are, are maturing and can, and can seed well. In the early, when the fruit is in the early phase, an immature fruit, it tends to be very high in stuff that's very good for us. And then as the fruit ripens, what happens is the vitamin C content goes down and the sugar content goes up. And by the time it falls off the tree, or, you know, when the animals start eating it, it doesn't have much vitamin C anymore and it's, or flavanols, and it's mainly fructose rich. And then they eat a lot of them. And bingo, they can activate this pathway to gain weight. But we, thank God, we tend to like tart fruit. We tend to like fruit that is often high in vitamin C. And these flavanols like luteolin and quercetin, David Perlmutter has pointed out that some of these flavanols not only block fructose, but they block uric acid. Yeah, they can lower uric acid. And we've actually done studies. Like if we give vitamin C, we can temper, we can reduce the effects of fructose to gain, to cause obesity in animals. And if we 
We can do something similar. We can, uh, I've given potassium. So like uh, some diuretics that are used in hypertension are known to cause metabolic syndrome as a side effect, and they tend to raise uric acid and lower potassium. And if we lower uric acid or raise potassium, we can block the effects of these diuretics to cause metabolic syndrome. And since fruits have a lot of potassium, I'm thinking that's probably a protective mechanism as well. And so there's, there's a lot of good things about fruit. And when we, we did a loaf, we did a, a, a diet in people in Mexicans who are overweight, where we, we put them on a low sugar diet with fruit supplements, or we put them on a low fructose diet. So they were basically low fructose for added sugars, but they could get natural fruit. And the other group was just low fructose across the board. So, you know, and what we found was that when they had natural fruit supplements, they liked the diet more and they lost weight just as well. And they, they had improvement in their metabolic syndrome just as well. And so, you know, eating natural fruits are, are good. And, you, you know, I don't think you want to eat a bowl of grapes at one setting. You don't want to eat lots of fruit at the same setting. But like a natural fruit is a great way to go. I, I would recommend, you know, one with each meal. You know, a nice apple or something like that would be a good thing to do. Also, there's the amount of fructose in the fruit. And some fruits have, you know, very little fructose. Some have more. In my book, I kind of talk about which ones uh, tend to be better. You know, and figs in particular are very rich in sugar. So it's not all fruits are good. But, but anyway, there's a science to this. So I think, you know, if you're interested and you want to, read more about it, you can you can do so in my book. Yes, listeners get Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. We only like briefly, barely touched an echo of everything that is in this book. So thank you so much for your time. I've been looking forward to this for so, so long. It was incredible. The last question I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? Oh, I'm, I'm grateful to be able to have the opportunity to do research and to take care of my patients. You know, I, I was very lucky that I chose this path to become a doctor, and I'm still a clinician and practicing physician, and I'm very grateful for being able to try to help people, both uh, my patients, and to do research where we can try to understand the causes of disease. You know, I'm grateful that COVID is finally ending. Yep, it's a nice, <laughs> nice thing. Well, thank you so much. I am so, so grateful for your work. I'm just in awe of everything that you're doing. It's incredible. I can't wait for listeners to get your book. If it's okay with you, I feel like I'm probably going to email you some other questions I have. But thank you so much. Any links you want to put out there for listeners to best follow your work? Okay. Well, I do have a website. It's drrichardjohnson.com. We post lots of little stories there. So that would be a good site for us. Awesome. Well, I'll put that in those show notes. Again, the show notes are at melanieavalon.com slash fructose. And thank you so much, Rick. This was amazing. I'm just so happy. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Melanie. Bye. Yeah, bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me 
at podcast at melanieavalon.com. And always remember, you got this.